You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. I still think doctors ought to make house calls and some of the chronically ill kids just to see what's, what's happening in the house. And sometimes it's a lot easier, especially if it's on the way home, to you know, stop in at the house rather than to get the child out in the wheelchair. And some of these chronically ill kids are not particularly mobile. And I think it's a skill that needs to come back a little bit. We have the option of looking at the world through soft eyes or hard eyes. When we look at the world through hard eyes, that's a separation. We can look at human beings with hard eyes, or we can look at other human beings uh, through soft eyes, and that invites people to come towards you and that sort of invisible embrace. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Seabags, Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, and Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 84, Life Examined airing for the first time on Sunday, April 21st, 2013. Today's guests include Dr. Connor Moore, retired physician and author of Black Bag to Blackberry, a Maine Pediatrician's 40-Year Journey, and Ted Carter of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, co-author of Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth. This past week, the world's eyes were turned upon the city of Boston following the explosions during the Boston Marathon on Patriot's Day. This, it seems, is simply the latest in a series of unimaginable tragedies. It's something senseless and and brings fear into our lives. The idea that families could be out watching their children and husbands and wives and fathers and mothers running in a 26-mile race that has required weeks of preparation and suddenly feel terrorized by bombs exploding and the knowledge that other bombs are elsewhere as yet unexploded, is something that is very difficult to grapple with. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio, our own podcast, examine life in a small way and in a big way every week by talking to people and hearing their stories. And we hope that you as listeners are also examining your own lives the way that our guests are helping us examine ours. There isn't much that can be said about the tragedy on Patriot's Day in Boston. It's senseless. It is unimaginable. The important thing, however, is to keep showing up and engaging and examining our lives and making sure that we're making the most of them every day. Our first guest is Dr. Connor Moore, who has been a longtime listener of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. He contacted me last fall to tell me about a program at the medically oriented gym that he had been doing as a Parkinson's patient himself. And this program became the focus of our show last week on Rethinking Parkinson's. At the same time he contacted me about the medically oriented gym, he sent me a copy of his book, Black Bag to Blackberry, A Maine Pediatrician's 40-Year Journey. This book gave me a fascinating look into the way medicine used to be. And it reminded me of why it is that I myself enjoy helping others in their own lives 
examining what works, what doesn't work, examining how families go about their daily business and how they make things happen. I know you'll enjoy our conversation with Dr. Connor Moore. I know you'll also enjoy our conversation with Ted Carter of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. Ted first came on our show for Earth Day 2012 and helped us examine what's happening on our planet. In addition to being a landscape architect, he also has a very spiritual connection to the earth and to the world around him. And he has a very real sense of how we can heal our broken connection to this earth. Ted Carter does indeed live and examine life. Thank you for joining us on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour again this Sunday. We know that life does go on and that there is always hope and there is always the chance to be compassionate and kind and loving to our fellow human beings. We appreciate your joining us on this journey. Last autumn, I received a pleasant surprise in the mail in the form of a gift from a fellow physician, Dr. Connor Moore. And this is his book, Black Bag to Blackberry. Dr. Moore had been listening to my radio show and reached out. And of course, he could have no idea how much I love to read and how great a gift a book is. Um, But he made my day. And I'm very fortunate to have him in the studio today to talk about his experiences over 40 years of being a pediatrician in Maine. Thank you for coming in and talking to us, Dr. Moore. Thank you, Dr. Lisa. I appreciate that. And I, um, I'm very appreciative of the work you're doing for pediatrics uh, on your show. I know that you've had uh, people come in and talk about uh, immunizations and other, other child issues. And I, I, I thank you for doing that. I th- think that that's an excellent, excellent program. Well, let's talk about pediatrics and children. In your book, which um, you wrote not too long ago, um, you wrote, in order to be in pediatrics, I learned that I would need a keen sense of humor and wonderment. Pediatricians need to know that the parent's occupation and the child's hobbies and sports interests, preferably without glancing at their office chart. Special attention must be paid to any gift a child offers you, be it a drawing, a popsicle stick house, or a rock. Days off were not really off. There always seemed to be emergency cesarean sections or exchange transfusions. My vacations were restorative, but when I returned from them, my partner would immediately take off for his 10 days of relaxation. It takes a lot to be a pediatrician in Maine, doesn't it? It does. And uh, when I looked at uh, places to settle after finishing my residency in Cincinnati in, uh, in uh, 1968, um, my wife is Canadian and we thought we'd either go to to northern New England or maybe Oregon or Washington. My fellow um, uh, residents and, and uh, professors of Cincinnati were just aghast that not only was I leaving academic medicine, but I was going to practice uh, medicine in the far north. And I think they envisioned, envisioned polar bears. Um, they said, how long are you going to stay there? I said, probably till I die. I think it's going to be a good race, place to raise kids. And they were just aghast that that was happening. When I got their news, get their newsletters over the years, um, they were always changing jobs or hospitals about every five years, so they, they were not staying in, in, in one place for a while. Um, but the joke was that Sockham Biddeford seemed to be in the center of things. If you put a, a uh, compass in, stick one end in Biddeford and swing it around, it's equally distant from Montreal, um, Boston, and New York as the old Vermont farmer joke goes. So we always think we're right in the middle of things. Well, and my family is from Biddeford. My dad's family is from Biddeford. They used to work in the mills. Wow. So um, we have that connection. Yes, and, yes. and my family felt like it was the middle of everything, too. Oh, yes, yes. yes. So I think this is a good place for you to be Excellent. helping the children Excellent. of Maine. Excellent. Excellent. So how did you come to be 
in Maine. What was it about Maine that initially drew you here, besides raising children? I think all the pediatricians at that time in 1968 were practicing solo out of their houses. They were desperately looking for uh, um, looking for partners. I partnered with Dr. Maurice Ross, who was a native of Biddeford, and he came to um, York County uh, following his residency in Philadelphia and brought a lot of uh, interesting things as far as IV treatment for newborns and newborn care and, and uh, umbilical catheters and that sort of thing. And I, I was impressed at the ad advanced uh, pediatric procedures that he had brought into Maine. And uh, I think that looked like a real challenge. And uh, I think along my way, I've had to make decisions uh, very, very quickly. And, and uh, once when I was in high school, I had a chance to go over to Germany in the fields to the Rotary Club one summer and decided not to do it. And, and uh, because uh, I didn't know any German. I woke up in college a couple years later and said, that was that was really stupid, and, and I'm not going to make that mistake again. So I had to decide very quickly whether to be a pediatrician when I was in the Air Force. I didn't have enough training to be an internist, and I had to make the decision in five minutes whether I wanted to work with the pediatricians for two years or just be a general medical officer. I had to make a decision uh, as far as you know which road to take when I, when I left Cincinnati. Um, I was lucky enough to... Uh, Sit next to Robert Frost as a Dartmouth when I was a freshman at Dartmouth in 1956, and several years before he died. And he talked to the freshman class every year. And as a kid from the suburbs, I had very little knowledge about stone walls and swing on birches. Didn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think his his poem about uh, two roads diverged in the wood, and I took the one less traveled, uh, um, made sense back then. And having made friends with uh, fishermen and, and lobstermen and farmers over the years. I, I think all of his poetry make, makes much more sense. But a lot of times I had to make decisions on career paths, and, and I had to make them very quickly. And, and uh, uh, I, I think this has worked out very well. And indeed, you have to make decisions very quickly often in medicine, especially if you're practicing in what I would consider a frontier medicine sort of situation back in the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, and I think it dawned on me one evening when I had a sick child with croup that uh, there was no senior resident to call, no hospitalist to call. It was just uh, me, the nurse, the parent, and the sick child. And, and that was a real, uh, really something to think about. And that, that, that happened very quickly after I came here. York County is large. Uh, it's, uh, we, Dr. Ross and I were the only two pediatricians in York County. York County is larger than Rhode Island and about two-thirds the size of Delaware. And I didn't realize how much, how much land area there was. People would come in for an hour and a half to you know, drive to get into Biddeford. And, and uh, so we were pretty much, uh, pretty much on our own. Yeah, there, there was no neonatal intensive care unit, main medical center, no uh, child intensive care center, no hospitalists. And, and so we had to do a lot of that stuff on our own. I made many frantic phone calls back to my professors at Cincinnati, and they would hold my hand through, uh, through, uh, through crises sometimes. We got to know a lot of the doctors in Boston. We got their inside phone numbers and their private lines, and so if we got into a real problem, we could, uh, you know, we could call them through the through the back lines. And I think that that worked out worked out fairly well, also. But um, yeah, I, th I think for a couple of years that it, it was it was just the two of us in York County, and and uh, um, it was it, it was busy and. Uh, one of the things that you talked about in your book was this idea of the LMD, or the local medical doctor. Right. And before you finished medical school, you or before you finished your training, you had this experience of people outside the hospital being referred to somewhat derisively as the LMD. Oh, right. the LMD did this, so the LMD did that. Right. But not always 
put forth in a favorable light, and then you became one of those. Right. The shoe was on the other foot. One day in cardiology clinic at Cincinnati, a child uh, was sent in with a question of heart disease by a uh, LMD, and I thought this child probably does not have this disease, and it turned out the LMD was right. And uh, uh, there's a Marion Moulton, who was a uh, just died recently. He was a female pediatrician in York County. He used to call me with kids with pneumonia and meningitis on a Friday night, and she was almost you know correct with with her diagnosis. So, and and uh, so there's no question that she was she was on the other foot. And uh, sometimes when we'd send kids down to Boston they, with a correct diagnosis, the initial history and physical would come back that uh, the child was sent down with. Uh, you know, vomiting or rash or something, and, and uh, where they just ignored the diagnosis that we sent the child down with, it, it, was, it was correct to begin with. So, But uh, very often it was a ch- the chief of pediatrics, uh, uh, you know, appreciated the LMDs. It was sort of the, the people who were under him and the other heads of the departments that were somewhat, somewhat derisive, but it was, it was interesting. And you also ended up um, needing to really rely heavily on the people that worked with you your nurses and um, the other members of the hospital staff and um, your office receptionist and your office staff. And these people came to offer a lot of very good, valuable information about patients and their families and how best to care for them. I've got a whole chapter in the book about where the diagnosis was made by the receptionist or the nurse or the physical therapist. And and, uh, we we did have to rely heavily on these. the people at the front desk knew these families very well, and if somebody, uh, and Mrs. Jones was really upset about her child, and she very seldom got got uh, got upset or anxious, we knew that there there was something going on. They certainly spotted several children with meningitis uh, as they walked as they walked through the front door of the office, or, or children with a, with a very serious disease, and they they were uh, they they were really well tuned in. They would also give us a heads up if the child's grandmother had died or there's something that the family was getting a divorce or something. They, they really knew these families well. But I think it started to unravel after a few years with uh, out-of-wedlock babies and divorces, and the, the reception said, you know, we can't keep these family folders together any longer because they're just not holding up, so we had to go to individual child folders. But uh, the people in the office really knew who was, uh, you know, what what the relationships were as far as you know families and children around town yeah that so what you're talking about is you used to keep families if you'd have a family of three kids you'd keep them all right in one in family one, one folder. folder and we had to go to different names yeah. doing it by alphabet because uh, the the families just didn't didn't sit together sometimes anymore but that does speak to the importance of the relationship between the physician and the patient, the, your staff and, and your patient and the patient's family, and how often it was very long-term. Oh, it was. And even though I'm retired, my wife was my office manager for a while. We still go into Hannaford and have people come up uh, telling us who they were from 20 or 30 years ago, and it's, it's not, an infrequent, uh, not, not an infrequent situation. And... Uh, um, a lot of the employees in my office were there for 20 or 25 years. Uh, you didn't get a telephone tree when you called in. You could, uh, you know, talk to somebody immediately, and, and uh, word would filter back that so-and-so had a sick child, and they were, they were coming in. And, and uh, um, I think the technology is good today, but I think we have to, have to meld it with uh, uh, with programs that still, still foster this sort of uh, intense relationships with the families. And, 
for several years, I was a solo family practitioner, and my patients had my phone number, and they called me, and they called me in the middle of the night. And that's actually become pretty unusual as physicians have joined groups, um, physician groups and hospital groups. But for you, that wasn't unusual at all. We had a primitive answering service, and I I was always fearful uh, answering the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning that I'd get a wrong number to call back. And and, uh, um, so I answered my own phone at home. But there were some drawbacks to this, and some of the calls got more bizarre as the evenings went on. And and, uh, I think some of my best phone call, one of my most interesting phone calls came at 3 o'clock in the morning as my my dog is... My child is wheezing. My dog just ate the inhaler, or I'm here at college, and, and I, I can't sleep. I thought I would, would call you, and uh, got a whole list of interesting phone calls. But uh, the other thing, my wife being a pediatric nurse, um, um, for a while we didn't have any doctors in the emergency room at Southern Bay Medical Center, so we had to go up and see the sick kids. And I remember a couple evenings when uh, I sort of gave the advice of take two aspirin in the morning or now and have them see me in the morning. My wife would kick me in the back and she said, you have no idea what's going on with that child. And, and uh, um, if you don't go up there now, I'm never going to get back to sleep again. So uh, I had sort of my own safety net at home as far as, 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 as making sure I went up to the emergency room. Um, you can see that, you know, it sounds bizarre. We, the hospital doesn't have any doctors in the emergency room, and, and, but that's, that's the way it was for a few years. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. In working with clients, I ask them to select the three windows in their house that they most often look through. In doing so, it starts to make them acutely aware of the fact that they spend so much of their lives inside their houses looking out and not the other way around. In reflecting, they actually are surprised to think how little they do actually go outside. This is the way a good design is implemented. We, we see it from a multitude of directions. There's also an unfolding of space that takes place. As we enter the property and move through the space, these static pieces, that these, these pieces of architecture that I install in the landscape, which are actually the plants and the trees and the semi-dwarf trees, they're actually, uh, they start to move as you move through the landscape and they start to address certain things in your landscape. These are all subtle things that can make a huge difference in the way your landscape is designed and the way that it speaks to you. Contact me at tedcarterdesign.com and we can discuss this further. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsor. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. 
One of my favorite parts of the book is heading towards the end where you're giving some pretty practical suggestions for how to keep kids healthy. For example, let them go outside and read to them. And I don't think you remember this, but you were describing being part of the Raising Readers ceremony in your office where Barbara Bush gave a um, book to one of your patients. And the part you don't remember is that I was there too. Oh my goodness. So you and I actually, I think, met each other before. So I was a medical director for Raising Readers, and you're a reader yourself. I didn't realize that. But this is one of the things that you say we should all do for our kids. And I think we fostered that back even when I came to York County back in the late 60s, early 70s. And and, uh, I think there have been some studies that show that if a child has has 10 books at home, they will... uh, children's books, they will they will become much better readers later on. You think that would be a piece of cake? Well, some of the low-income families, those books are 15 or $20 a piece. And that, 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 that's a lot of money. And I, I, um, who, who was the lawyer who was the head of the uh, Raising Readers? Owen Wells from the Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I, I sent, I wrote an article, a uh, letter to the editor, and I said, um, for all the things they're doing in the Lieber Foundation, this Raising Readers is just probably the most buck, bang for the buck that any program I've seen, and they really, really should be proud of, the, proud of that. And it's been a prototype for other states that have come and visited the, the program, and my son in Colorado has a similar similar program. But, you know, this is one of the simple things, like putting uh, safety caps on, on, on pill bottles. It, it, it costs some money, but it and takes some thought. But it's not it's not rocket science. It's something that, that if you get some dedicated people, you can you can you can implement this, and it just just makes a huge difference, huge difference down the line. And uh, as does encouraging children to go outside. Oh yes, yes. The um, my kids have all been hikers. We take our grandchildren out on hikes, and and uh, I think they've done a study in England showing that uh, the the benefits of getting outdoors as far as mental health problems or ADHD and the, it's, it's just absolutely incredible. And I think a lot of the kids have this environmental deprivation syndrome where, you know, where, where, they, where, where they don't get out there watching TV or playing games inside. And, and uh, I think there's just a lot of evidence that the, the, the kids really need this. And probably one subconscious reason that I, that I moved to Maine because it's maybe a lot easier to get outside here than, you know, than, than other parts of the country. But... Uh, how has it been to have the tables turn and to be a patient now yourself? You contacted me and you said, um, this is my story. And I think you should also know that I have Parkinson's and I've been working with a medically oriented gym and they're doing a lot of interesting work there. And um, maybe you should look into it. Yeah. So how has uh, that been for you to be the patient it, now? It is. And I, I think there was a movie called The, the Doctor. I forget who played the, uh, the leading role, but is a surgeon who um, then has cancer the larynx and the there tables are t- hurt yes yeah and he, the tables were turned and he has to take a number in clinic and wait for the for the radiation and and uh, uh, the operating room uh, really really turns the tables on him so it 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 it, it has been a bit of a, a wake-up call in that direction and and uh, I usually don't drink when I'm out uh, um, eating but sometimes my my balance is a little bit off going to the men's room later on you can see people looking in, or sometimes I've had a little trouble getting change across the counter to a, a clerk or something that may be a little short with me and you just get a little hint of what some of the kids with cerebral palsy or other other you know dis- disabilities must must grow you know must must go through I think even today I think I took my medicine on time but my voice is not as usually as, as good as it is and I'll have good days and bad days and and uh, um, some, sometimes you can do that without notice. Um, 
But I think we have a, a, a group at the MOG of uh, six or seven people with Parkinson's. We've got to know each other. It's like a, 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 a moving support group, and, and uh, um, it, it, it's, it's really been an interesting evolution. Uh, there's a chap I take from church. I won't give his first name, but um, he has Parkinson's, and he's a couple years older than I am, and, and uh, had the disease for about 11 years, and, and uh, um, I, a lot of tremor gets stuck in doorways. And I said, "This is going to be this is going to be a, a, a project." And I sort of held my breath. And he's done magnificently. He's back driving his truck. He's walking much better. As balances with other people at the church. I said, "What the hell have you done with him?" Pardon my French. Uh, um, he, you know, he's just, he's, he's sort of a new person, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's brighter and, and uh, this was just all part of the program of, in, of interacting and, and uh, I think they're doing some of this in medical school. They're having medical students wear blinders for a day to see what it feels like, you know, being blind or they, they can, they can uh, simulate some other disease, you know, disease processes and it, it, it is, it, it's, it, it's, it, 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 it's a wake-up call. Well, Dr. Moore, I know that you and I could spend so much more time talking about this. This You've barely scratched the surface of the 40 years that you've been practicing medicine and even the, probably the 20-something years before that in your life. But um, I, I know that many children in southern Maine who are probably now adults or a good chunk of them are now adults have benefited from your wisdom and your care and your compassion and your connection and also the, all the work done by your wife to keep, yes, <laughs> that, keep your family um, and your practice going. Thank you very much. I hope there are some little truisms or words of wisdom that, that floated out today and, and uh, uh, the things I've learned over, over 40 years. And, and it's just, as I say, we just scratched the surface of some of that. But, uh, and I, I thank you again for the work that you do with, with, with Children of the Radio Show. I, th I think that's, that's it's an excellent program, and thank you. And where can people find a copy of your book, Black Bag to Blackberry? Um, it's available on Amazon. I know that they have them at Nonesuch Books in Biddeford. Uh, I'm sure if they went to the Nonesuch store in South Portland and asked them to you know, send some books down, they, they, they would certainly do that. And uh, uh, if anybody wants to contact me, um, I do some speaking gigs in PowerPoint around the book. And, and uh, the Jesse's Gift address is box 1234 Biddeford 0405. And, uh, I, I think somebody was looking out for us because I, I, out of the probably thousands of boxes, there's only one, one box that goes one, two, three, four, and somebody was working very diligently behind the scenes to get us, us that that box number, and, and uh, um, so it, it's just an interesting turn of events. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Connor Moore, a retired pediatrician and now author of Black Bag and Blackberry. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. It's in our DNA. Evolution, growth, and development are increasingly seen as being heavily influenced by our human design. But we are no longer simply instinctive creatures programmed to live life without thought. The ability to think and feel make us more adaptable but we are also more susceptible to feeding our program bad data. The just do it culture calls us to act first, but the athletes that brought us this slogan had meticulous plans, a singular focus to help them move way beyond instinct to a place that combines experience, instinct, feeling, and routine. They operate on intuition. 
What DNA does offer is a model to help us make incremental changes consistently over time, evolution instead of revolution. Marketing may play on your instincts, feelings, and thoughts, but we are free to choose how we spend our resources. To learn more, email us at info at shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. In 2012, we had the great good fortune to have Ted Carter of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes and author of the book, Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth, in the studio with us around Earth Day. And how fortunate we are again to have Ted Carter coming back because Ted, Earth Day is sort of your, it's your time of year. It's right around your birthday. It's right around the time that your book was published. We really appreciate your coming in and giving us an update on what's going on in the world of dirt. Yes, well, uh, thank you, Lisa. It's great to be back here, and it's great to um, put a voice behind the work again. I, I appreciate being here very much. Well, and you've yeah. really been getting your hands dirty. Not only have you been working hard with the business that you've created, and you've been working um, how many years have you been doing that now? <laughs> how far back do you want to go? Probably since I was eight years old. But <laughs> um, So but. decades, you've been working hard with <laughs> yeah. that, and that's gotten yeah. very successful. But now you've really put new energy behind the book that you're writing. Yes. Uh, well, we, we published our first book, Reunion, um, six years, uh, well, three years ago, but we started our working on it uh, six years ago. So, and everything in my life seems to go in multiples of three, and uh, it's been out in the public eye now for three years, and it's and we were picked up by Great Northern Books uh, in uh, California, and uh, they happened to think it was a rather prophetic book, and 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 it is a, a book about the times we're living in, and the things that we did predict three years ago have all come true. Um, I. I hesitate to say that because it's not all good, <laughs> but, but it's something that we, you know, basically it was a handbook uh, on climate change and what we have to start expecting. And this is you and your co-author. Yes, my co-author uh, is Ellen Gunter. She's a magnificent writer. Um, uh, essentially, we make a very good team because uh, I you know, finance uh, all, a lot of the publication and, and all of the work that has to go into it. Um, she does a lot of the writing. Uh, it's a collaborative effort, however, it's not 
it's not just her thinking, it's both of our thinking together. And when we're rehashing information and republishing things, we're talking continually and, and, and editing and trying to figure out how to lay the book out. So, Creating a book is a labor of love, just as creating this landscape business that you've had for all these years. And you do it because you do love the earth. You brought in today a book by John O'Donohue that I happen to really love. It's called Beauty. We've talked about John O'Donohue on air before. And I know that you have a passage that you'd like to read to us. Yeah, I, I met John a couple of times uh, through Carolyn Mace. He was a guest uh, speaker for us at Carolyn Mace Institute in Chicago. And uh, I was, uh, you know, unfortunately that he died of a, a brain aneurysm a few years ago, but uh, an absolutely amazing mystic and uh, wonderful uh, poet and writer, human, great human being. Um, it's actually chapter two in Beauty, in his book entitled Beauty, The Invisible Embrace Beauty, um, the affection of the earth for us. The beauty of the earth is the first beauty Millions of years before us, the earth lived in wild elegance. Landscape is the firstborn of creation. Sculpted with huge patience over millennia, landscape has enormous diversity of shape, presence, and memory. There is a poignancy in beholding the beauty of landscape. Often it feels as though it has been waiting for centuries for the recognition and witness of the human eye. And. Uh, I just think that, that what we have to realize is that when we create these, what I call sacred spaces for people, or we create any space, that space holds our energy. It's a, it's, we pour our heart, our soul, our energy into cr that creation. And that imbues an energy that, that, that resonates and comes back to feed us. And we, don't, we think that, you know, when we go into that space that when we leave it, that space doesn't miss us, but it does. And it's because we complete that peace. Because it's, and, and, and the earth feels our presence, and, and those areas feel our presence. And, um, you know, when we walk into a, a nature preserve or something, we, we feel like we're, we're the great witnesses, that we witness this, but we're the ones being observed by a thousand eyes. I mean, the birds are looking at us. The insects that are crawling around the sides of the tree are kind of peering out at us. The frogs are looking at us. The, you know, it, it, it's, it could have a fox behind another tree looking at us. And we don't see them. But they're, we're the one being observed. And uh, I gave a lecture at the Portland Flower Show on Saturday, and I I said, you know, we have the option of looking at the world through soft eyes or hard eyes. And when we look at the world through hard eyes, you know, that's, that's a separation. We can look at human beings with hard eyes, and that creates a barrier, a separation. Or we can look at other human beings and, uh, through soft eyes, and that invites people to come towards you and, and to that, that sort of invisible embrace. So. Nature is the same way. We can look at, at her with soft or hard eyes. And she can either come to us and we can see her for all her beauty and magnificence, or we can look at her as a, 
as a more of a linear logical local force, which is something to be bought, purchased, cut up, divided, manhandled, you know, which we do so well. <laughs> we'll return to our interview in a moment. We on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. Throughout my career, I've worked with countless small business owners and entrepreneurs who have invested so much time and work that very little time was left over to enjoy life, to savor time with family or friends and doing things other than work that revives them. It's a common application to the old adage, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. But what if doing it yourself means not doing it correctly? What if spending all that time at work, keeping all the balls in the air, zaps your mental energy so much that you're not able to enjoy your life outside of work? When I run into people who suffer from that, I've got to do it myself syndrome, I tell them, stop. Take a look at the parts of your business you enjoy working on, you're good at and create value. Then look at the duties that are on the need to get them done list and think, can I outsource these? Chances are the answer will be yes, and there are a number of people out there who specialize in helping small businesses win. When you outsource, you give yourself the gift of time, time that can be savored doing more of what matters to you personally. When this happens, you'll be surprised at the positive impact it will have on your business and your mental health. For more insight, contact us at boothmain.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. When you think of, of John O'Donohue's homeland, Ireland, it used to be a, a land filled with trees. Well, they cut them all down during the potato famine and other famines, and Ireland, you go to Ireland now, there's no trees. <laughs> So, you know, we have, and, and there's this huge thing going on with the, uh, the, the uh, Amazon jungle right now. I mean, we're, we were on a great path, and some of the environmental things have been weakened. Now we're back on the trenches with having them do more deforestation. So, so the, it's really, a, it's always a battle. Um, learn the indigenous birds in your area. Uh, uh, that's a really fun thing to do. I have bird feeders. I've always had bird feeders. I love birds. They, they, 
I'll I'll be I'll be pouring bird seed <laughs> in, and I'll talk to the chickadees. They always sort of talk to you, you know, when you're out there, and they go this chirp chirp chirp, and they're all just dancing around. And I've had them come down, and and I'm holding something up, and they come and they they land right on the object I'm holding, like my bird feeder that I'm holding in my hand, and they look right at me and chirp at me, and we have a little conversation, and they just fly off, and and uh, you know, I mean, this is how how readily available nature is to us and how she talks to us all the time you know when i was in the redwood forest a year ago um, i was uh, i remember i was on my crutches and i had had some foot surgery and my crutch would sink down into the forest floor and and i'd pull the thing out and and but my ears were just whenever i'm near spirit you know my ears just go crazy and my ears were just I mean, it was like I was at a cathedral in the woods and looking up at all these trees, and my, there's this piercing noise that comes through me. And I always, that's my, the way spirit communicates, you know. And there's spirits, those are the great witnesses. Some of those trees have been around since the time of Christ. I mean, that's how old they are, 2,000 years old. So anyway, I don't mean to get down that rabbit hole, but I, um, I get excited when I talk about these things because they're so... It, they bring so much to the human spirit. Um, the other thing is the, you know, the, the making of a polyculture. Um, our, what happens to the earth when it's become violated, you get all of these invasives move in. Um, we all see like these honeysuckles, poplar trays, bittersweet, just culch crap stuff that moves in and that's like a scab so when you scrape mother earth when you scrape her skin which is the, the epidermis which is her skin first chakra all connected it it forms a scab that scab is the invasives because what it, it's 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 sort of like when you scrape your lawn several times with a plow year after year what grows back is plant and lily or something of that nature it, it, it's it's like a scab and then uh, you, you get sort of a monoculture going on, which which really weakens the ecosystem. We want polycultures where there's there's a a lot of different uh, flora and fauna out there. So a monoculture is would just be one, like bittersweet, well, and, right? And a polyculture would be multiple different plants. multiple different things. This is why we're having such a, a struggle with genetically modified organisms, gen GMOs. Um, because what's what it's doing is it's it's eradicating the polycultures, and and creating a monoculture on a vast, huge, gigantic level. In it's going from continent to continent, it's enormous, and it's a huge movement. Europe is really fighting against it. Um, unfortunately, America is a lost cause. We're already too late for America, where we are. I mean, I'm not being defeatist, but uh, Monsanto um, has done a number. But as individuals in our own backyards, on our own landscapes, we can make an effort to... We can make an effort to do polycultures. I'll move into an area. Uh, I have these continual uh, discussions with the DEP or with towns that say, oh, this is a no-cut zone. This is a no-touch zone. And I say, what are you protecting here? I said, it's a thicket of bittersweet w with honeysuckle and poplar trees. All trash. I mean, not that I, not all honeysuckle is trash. All of it's good in its, in proportion and scale. But when it comes in such a quantity and, and, and covers vast acres of it, of just the same three things, it's not healthy. And it's not a healthy ecosystem.
So um, I say to them, yeah, what are, what are you trying to protect here? I said, I'm, I want to move in here. I want to create a polyculture. I want to move in a different uh, uh, genus and species to create a more uh, balanced ecosystem uh, that supports indigenous wildlife. And, you know, they, they get it. I mean, but... Well, do you think some of it is because people don't necessarily, they just aren't as aware of, you know, if they look at something, you're going to look at something and say, this is a monoculture, I can do better than this. Other people are going to look at it and they're going to say, well, we're trying to save the wildlife. We're trying to save something. So maybe their intentions are good, that they're trying to, to keep things natural, but they just don't have the education and the, the vision that you have. Right, and I have to keep that in mind. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that we all pay the dear price of, of the really reckless person. Um, you know, the reckless backhoe operator that gets on the coast and levels everything, you know, he'll ruin it for the rest of us because then they have to put these laws in place that are so stringent that, that you know, you're kind of like, you can't move. And um, I think there's a balance there. I, I th and you're right. I think that a lot of people get a hold of, there's a lot of people in the landscape design business that really don't understand that balance either. You know, they want to impose their imprint on the land. And, and I do that too. I mean, I, I mean, I see a design sensibility. I, I come out of a, um, sort of a Eurocentric, um, my, my house is very kind of a, has a Eurocentric feel to it. And it's, it has a relaxed formality, I say, but it's very, um, it's like an English country house, but it's got a pruned boxwood hedge, but then it's got these wildflowers, you know, in behind it. And so it's got the discipline and the undisciplined working together. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of freedom through discipline. You know, if we discipline ourselves, we can, we, there's a lot of movement and creation that happens through that discipline. But you have to have a good, strong structure and organization to allow for that creativity and that undisciplined piece of yourself to move forward. And it, we're always moving against those energies. So it's like planting a garden or, or creating a landscape, is that you have to first have things sort of laid out in order for them to start growing in the ways that they would naturally grow. Yeah, you have to. I mean, this is the big thing about permaculture, which is such a, uh, it's just a, it looks like a mess. I, you know, and I really love the idea behind it and everything, and I think it's a great thing, um, but it's not saleable. Well, talk to me about permaculture. I'm only vaguely aware of it because I have to tell you, my thumbs are not as green as yours. Well, <laughs> permaculture is about creating a whole a whole system so that you actually live off the land that you have, and and it completely provides pretty completely provides everything that you need from water to fruits, vegetables, uh, you know, flowers, uh, and and brings it brings natural forces in and and creates a, a very uh, homogeneous habitat for both uh, man and uh, native species and animals and, and insects and plants. Um, so I, and I am not doing a very good job describing it, but it, it and I've attended classes and I've, I've, I've gone to workshops because I want to try to understand it better so I can move it into my landscaping work, but it, it I'm having a really hard time with it because it doesn't quite, biodynamics works for me working with the biodynamic, you know, Rudolf Steiner's work, um, that has a... So what is it about permaculture that you haven't been able to quite... <coughs> <coughs> it, 
it's structure. It's 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 lack of structure. Okay. It's too messy. It's not saleable. I can't I can't sell permaculture. I mean it. You know I'm not knocking permaculture. I think it's fantastic for the right person. But I it's in my industry in my business in my business model. I can't really I can't really um, I can't sell it yet because I haven't figured out how to market it properly. <laughs> So maybe when you're talking about this balance, mm -hmm. um, permaculture might be an ideal, but right. it isn't really quite there yet as no. far as reality is concerned. I think there's got to be a hybrid. I think that we are all so much, you know, when I think about how we've evolved, there's a, in my, one of my, in my book presentation, for instance, in, in the slideshow that I do for, for the book reunion, there's a picture about how uh, uh, these sprays, spray gun, this mist that's being cast over. All these kids are having lunch in this lunchroom, and there's this fog all, all through the, and there's this jet that this man's holding that's spraying all this fog all over them. And I say to people in the audience, you know what that is? And they all, no one knows. And I said, that's DDT. And I said, that's, that's in the 1950s. We were promoting DDT. And then, you know, I remember in Chicago running behind the, the, the truck in the fog growing up, and oh, my gosh, you know, and that was all DDT. And, uh, and then they sh I show one thing where the guy's actually mixing it up in a, in a bowl and eating it to, to prove how safe it is. Well, I mean, you know, obviously he's long gone. But, I mean, <laughs> I mean, this is how far we've come. And so when we look at where we are now, we've got all these things coming up with the biodynamics is, 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 is really is, is there. Um, the permaculture is there. You've got people uh, gardening and doing more, growing more of their own food. You've got a lot of things happening right now, but somehow this needs to be pulled together in a way where it's 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 an and in both world. It's not either or. It's you still. I love lawn, but I only like some lawn. I'm not a big lawn person, and it doesn't really interest me. But it's a monoculture, and it's you know. Well, and we also can't get rid of DDT on this earth completely because there are parts of the world where malaria is rampant and DDT yes. is the most effective way to get rid of mosquitoes. So right. I'm not an advocate of DDT in any way whatsoever, but I think it, it does speak to this balance. We learn things as we go along, and we, if we forget the things that we learned previously, then we run into difficulty. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. It's not flushing the baby out with the bathwater. It's... it's it's about learning as we go and taking pieces, you know, cherry picking the pieces we need to take with us and leaving some of the stuff that's dangerous behind. Well, one last thing I wanted to ask you about is um, this biodynamics idea, because you mm -hmm. re referred to it and re referred to Rudolf Steiner. Um, what is biodynamics and why do you think it has some important lessons for us as we're moving forward um, and trying to heal our earth? There's a passage in my book I'd like to read to you. Biodynamics is designed to work with healing and empowering the immune system in every molecule of soil and plant life, to waste nothing and to be fully sustainable, to have a fully sustainable system. A biodynamic farmer's aim is to understand the laws and forces of nature and work in harmony and cooperation with them to cure the soil naturally of the toxins that have been deposited in it and heal our own hungry, disconnected spirits in the process. That is biodynamics in a nutshell. 
And what you work with is, is preps. I mean, I've been to the Josephine Porter Institute, spent a week there. I, I, I went to the Pfeiffer Institute and took classes there um, in New York. Um, and I have a, a barn full of cow crap from, from California. <laughs> and that I still got to use. I, I have pallets of it that was brought over. Uh, it's probably the most expensive cow manure that I've ever, or a lot of people probably would have ever purchased. But anyway, uh, you know, it, it takes a little bit of this. It's an, the essence of this. It, you, you know, you, you take and you use a spray, you make these preps and you spray them. And they actually work um, biodynamically with the plant life and with the soil. So the reason that you are so excited about the California cow poop is because it was biodynamically prepared. So right, with the cows, like the pasture, the, the, the cows are grazed on biodynamic land, you know, with biodynamic preps. Uh, you know, you have the oak bark prep and the, the, the nettle prep and all these different preps and they're you 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 bury them you see the earth inhales is as we're moving into the into the winter you bury your preps in the soil in the winter time you know as you're moving into winter because the cosmos the think of the earth on one side of the earth is inhaling inhalation and pulling the cosmic forces into the preps and then the southern hemisphere is exhaling so inhale, exhale. So now we're moving into the, as we move into spring, we're moving into exhalation. So we leave the preps in there for one solid year and then we harvest them and out of that one space and we put new preps in. And we use those preps and, and it's, we use just a little, the essence of those preps, just a pinchful in a sprayer. I mean, you know, a, a handful of this stuff will do a whole acre. And so the prep you mean is the cow manure? Uh, well, it could be the, the bark, bark prep that you take off the trees. It could be the nettle prep. Now, Pfeiffer, not Pfeiffer, but uh, Josephine Porter, makes and sells the preps, and you buy the preps from them. Uh, you can make your own preps. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I haven't been able to do my own preps because I haven't had time, and I bought a lot of stuff from Josephine Porter. So <laughs> I'm still playing with this stuff, you know. But you, as your... Um working with people who have asked you to do their landscaping, mm-hmm. um, you're keeping all of these things in mind. You're keeping in mind the sort of the health of their own ecosystem within their land and also the health of the greater ecosystem and what they need and want to have out of it. So you really are trying to create this. It's not just planting flowers for you or planting trees. You are really trying to look at some bigger way of um, bringing life and beauty to their lives. Right. I mean, my journey with my clients is more, really more of a spiritual journey. Uh, the land, yes, I'm a landscaper, but um, uh, it's much more involved than just planting a few bushes and trees. <laughs> you know, you have, the human spirit um, is, is very complex and it's very multifaceted and our biological systems as complex and, and as, as incredible as our anatomical system is, and as uh, complex as it is, so are our human spirits. And when I look at the land, that's another whole set of complexities. So you're sort of moving the complexity of, the, of, of, of all the different land is so different. I mean, I, will, I come onto a job site, every job is different. Every piece of land is different. The clients are different. It's so hard to get bored in this business because there's so much 
diversity and complexity. And you're trying to meld the spirit of the land and the spirit of the, of, of the inhabitant and create a space that really embraces them. You know, I want to create a space so that they never want to leave, that they just love their place, that they feel like, you know, okay, I'm out in the world, I'm doing my work, but when I come home, I, you know, that's my place, to my place of refuge. And I think that the built environment, if it's done properly and it's respectful of who they are and, and since built in a sincere way, it really can do that for them. Ted, I'm very excited for all the work that you're doing and I'm glad that you were able to come in and spend time with us talking about the book that you're creating the second edition for. This is Reunion, How We Heal Our Broken Connection to the Earth, along with your co-author, Ellen Gunter, and also talking with us about the work that you do as part of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes. There's a lot that you bring to the state of Maine and to probably, I think, beyond the borders of the state of Maine. So I, I'm really thrilled to have you here today. Oh, well, it's just great to be here, Lisa. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 84, Life Examined. Our guests have included Dr. Connor Moore and Ted Carter. For more information on our guests, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, please let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. As Socrates once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. We hope that our show, the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, may assist you in the examination of your own life. We know it helps us examine our own lives every week as we bring it to you. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our show this week on Life Examined. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Seabags, Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, and Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.